This special monthly UBU episode on hashtag Black Mental Health is sponsored by Janta Neuroscience and supported by the Painted Brain, a California peer-run organization. All right. Well, welcome and welcome back to Unapologetically Black Unicorns. And as usual, I have a fantastic guest, uh, somebody who's here from California. And as we talk about our hashtag Black Mental Health, I think, you know, she makes a perfect guest to talk about her own personal family journey. But why don't I go ahead and let Ton Hall, who is our guest, introduce herself. So hi, Ton. Welcome. And why don't you introduce yourself to our listeners? Yeah. Hi, Karis. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me on today. I really appreciate it. And um, giving me the opportunity to talk about what happened to our family and what happened to my beautiful son, um, Miles Hall, who was um, killed by the police on June 2nd, 2019, while experiencing a mental health emergency. Mm-hmm. So we basically now have been thrusted into advocacy to make sure that there's changes in the way that um, people with mental health emergencies are treated. And we really want to make sure we remove the police from that encounter because some of the things about Miles is just, he was just so beautiful and so kind and thoughtful and caring. And he lived with mental illness and he lived with mental illness when he was a younger person. And um, it's been a challenge for him. And it's been a challenge for us to, to try to support him during his journey throughout his younger days, um, throughout his older days and young adult days. So we are we are now just trying to kind of maneuver life without him. Right, right. Well, I'm so glad you're here. And, you know, of course, sorry that this has happened, but, you know, glad that it's, you know, moved you into action. You know, in my mind, you know, I keep, keep thinking, you know, when we think about mental health and mental health support, especially for, uh, you know, Black folks and young adults and, and young folk is how do we meet people where they are and what kind of things might you have expected? I mean, I was really interested to learn that he he liked music. He liked, I think, rap music or hip hop music. And there are, you know, Black support groups that are based on hip hop. Mm-hmm. Who knew, right? <laughs> and, you know, sometimes how might that be of support to someone to meet them where they are in an area of interest that they have? But let's start at the beginning. Tell me a little bit sort of how things got to the point they got to. Yeah. Um, can you share a little bit about that? When he was in school, like all his teachers just really, really enjoyed him. They would always say at the end of the year, gosh, we really enjoyed him. He was a great kid. Um, they said he, he was squirrely, you know, he had a lot of energy. Um, but that was also, he was diagnosed with ADD, attention deficit disorder as a younger child. And when he went into middle school, he was doing really well. And he, I feel like he kind of found a groove with friends and, and he was also on the, um, when he went into high school, he also was on the basketball team. He played basketball in middle school as well. Uh, I feel like he was, he was doing, he was just thriving. Uh, but when, when I say that he still had things that um, I felt like were challenging for him we really started to notice really big changes when he was about to graduate from high school and he just didn't have any plans. He didn't have any plans for the future. He didn't see himself going to college or even thinking kind of like further along. 
And, um, and that was kind of surprising because we live in an area where um, school is really important. Education is important to us. We've kind of instilled that in him. And that was fine if he didn't want to go to school, but it was just kind of a surprise. And then we were really surprised when he kind of was like, well, God's going to provide for me. And we're not a super religious family. So we were kind of like, okay, that's a different kind of thought and mindset. Okay. So we're like, all right. So when he um, ended up graduating from high school, he started to like kind of send disorganized texts to like friends and family, but it was just kind of concerning kind of to see some of the things that were, that he was saying. And it was not, he was always very kind and gentle. It was just more of a dis- disorganized thought process mm-hmm. in the way that he was texting. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of where it started. And then I was like, okay, well, how can I support Miles? Because we started seeing some of those behaviors. And I tried to get him to go to therapy. He wasn't interested in going to therapy. So I was like, well, I'll go to therapy so I can support him and know how to handle and help him throughout his journey. And um, I ended up doing that. And I, you know, I got some tips from her, from the therapist, but it wasn't enough. You know, Miles was at this point now he's over 18 and he's um, now he can make all the decisions for himself. Right. So there's not much I can do to support him at one point, at one point, Miles, um, he decided he was going to leave our house and he left like in the middle of the night. He didn't really know anyone. He didn't know where he was going. And um, he didn't come home that night. Mm-hmm. So I was really, I was concerned for his safety. And it's kind of hard to explain because Miles was so trusting of others and, and thought, you know, he was just a very innocent person. But I remember him, you know, finally coming home. We had called the missing persons report out and we didn't know where he was. And it was scary. Mm-hmm. And from that point, I was like, I'm, I'm concerned for Miles' safety he he didn't have the right he didn't have the mindset that he really was understanding as much were you concerned too that people wouldn't understand him and sort of in how he was communicating and the things that he believed about himself and that was also scary yeah that- yeah no i think that that definitely um kind of played into my concerns we live in a white area miles is african american um i was just i was also yes like you said just concerned of what others not think about him, but just that they might be scared of him or not quite understand. And he's, mm-hmm. he's at this point, he's already gone to some of the neighbor's houses. He's been preaching to them, knocking on their doors, saying he's Jesus. So that was part of why I was concerned is because he left our house and, you know, this behavior started. And then I also had found out about NAMI, National Alliance of Mental Illness. I took their family to family class that kind of taught us more about like what to do with someone has it's like mental health, like one-on-one to teach mm-hmm. about like different disorders, you know, schizophrenia, bipolar. And one thing they did say is partner with the local law enforcement. So I did that. I felt like, okay, well that's, that's a start. So I was just trying to be proactive in the work and trying to get him help mm-hmm. to try to make sure for one, if my neighbors were calling the police, they knew, okay, well, this young man has a mental illness, something's going on. Also, we hadn't gotten an official diagnosis of what was happening yet. Mm. So we also looked to the police because there's no other way at the moment, if someone's not willing to go and get help, is to get a diagnosis. Mm -hmm. So we felt it was really important to at least try to get a diagnosis to find out what was going on. 
So when we did make contact with police, it was only because, like I said, Miles was showing disorganized thoughts. Um, we had the police come to our home and very kind, thoughtful, considerate. Um, there's never aggression any time. Uh, it was just to make sure the police knew who Miles was. Right. He's now diagnosed with what we call schizoaffective disorder. Mm-hmm. Schizoaffective disorder causes delusions and hallucinations. Um, it also causes agnosia, and that's something that where you're you they don't have the same reasoning as you and I. Mm-hmm. So he didn't understand that he was sick, even though it was obvious to others. It wasn't obvious to him. Mm-hmm. So that's a really kind of a dangerous part of the brain when that doesn't work right, mm-hmm. because he doesn't understand the same things that maybe danger or um, the reasoning parts are off. So when I realized that too, I understood that this was, it was really critical that we tried to get him help. And we were able to get Miles a successful 5150. And what, what happened with that is they were able to give him medication in the med- in the hospital. That was at Miles's consent. He, he agreed to that. But when he came back, from the hospital, he was like a different person because he had this medication. So it was like light switch went off night and day. He was wanting to get a job. He wanted to go to school. He wanted to get a girlfriend. So we were so excited for the fact that Miles could live a normal life with medication. That's all he needed. And um, we were so happy. And so Miles did get a job. He got a job. He started, you know, dating. Well, the time that we were able to get Miles, the second 5150, it was very challenging trying to get him help because he has to be a danger to self, danger to others, or gravely ill. So we had to say that Miles, potentially, um, he had a, a pocket knife. And Miles wasn't doing anything with that pocket knife, but he had a pocket knife. We had to say that possibly, you know, this could he could be, this, could, this pocket knife could be a danger, even though he wasn't doing anything with a pocket knife. But we had been trying, again, for like five months, four months, trying to get him help. And then a couple months later, we start seeing the start, some of the behaviors happening again, where he's thinking he's Jesus, he's knocking on doors. Uh, so I had called the non-emergency line the day before Miles was killed. And I just said, hey, I'm just starting to see Miles is, looks like his mental health is kind of declining. He's knocking on doors again. I just wanted to let you know, he can, just in case you get other calls from other people, just want to make sure you guys know that Miles is looking like he's um, needing some support. And of course, he didn't make any criteria at that moment. There was no help that they could give him. So I called the non-emergency line. Now I had a contact with the police. It was a mental health officer with the police. I contacted her because now we had a relationship. As I, again, it's just trying to partner, being a partner, like, come on, help support my child, my beautiful son who um, doesn't even understand he's sick um, to get him support. So then the next day, Miles is in a full-blown mental health emergency. He's thinking he's Jesus. He's gardening outside with a neighbor. He has um, a neighbor because we have a very close community. That He was working in the garden, and they saw him, and he said, oh, you might look like you need some help. So they gave Miles a garden tool so he could do what he was doing. But Miles is now in a delusional state, and he thought he was Jesus. He now thought this garden tool was a staff from God, which is very common with someone who's in a hallucinationary state. And um, so Miles ended up breaking a window in our in our house, a sliding glass door. So 911 was called by my mother. 
And so, um, unfortunately about 15 minutes later, uh, miles was shot behind our house. Five officers arrived and two of them shot their guns. The first shot was a beanbag. And then, um, he was shot after I got to the hospital. I saw the mental health officer now that we had the relationship with. And she told me when I got there, you did everything right. You were the model family. And I just said, how can we be the model family when my son is dead? So I knew at that point that this was my life's work and that I had to make change because another family should never have to go with what we had to go through. You know, Tan, I'm perplexed by this whole thing and, and not not by anything that, that you have done. But I think, again, like what you're saying is how do people understand where they're gaping holes in the system? Right. How pe- How do people understand that a Black man walking on the street when they're ill and may not be cognizant of the fact that that could land them in trouble, which it, it shouldn't, right? But but right. it could. How do people understand the very nature of you all doing the things that you needed to do as a loving family that you would never do if he had cancer? You would never do if he had asthma. You would never do if he had diabetes and he decided, I don't want to take my diabetes medication or what have you, right. or participate in diabetes treatment. That there is, as much as we say there's parity, or, or working towards parity, the reality is there isn't parity if your loved one needs help and that help isn't there. You you end up having to use people who have nothing to do with the mental health system, police, to come in and help. And I and I think you know you're doing an excellent job of explaining it, and it's very perplexing to me because it's it's just like so wrong on so many yeah. levels. I'm right. I'm I'm just shock that here you are trying to get help, but you have to be ridiculously sick to get that help. And and that's the, that's the, the really, everything's bad, right? I mean, Miles is dead yeah. now. I mean, it's, it's, yeah. it's bad, yeah. right? Like, yeah. but the fact, the matter is that, you know, we did work with the police to get him that 5150. So she had all these logs of showing that Miles was having serious mental health challenges and the fact that they criminalized him and they also, you know, said they that wasn't probably going to happen, like because they knew he needed a diversion program or something. Right. But mm-hmm. the fact that they they you're charging him with it with they said he re- resisted arrest and that he, you know, had possession with a deadly weapon, which is a pocket knife. Mm. But Karis, you, you said it right. The desperation that families have because there is no other way to get help. That's the, that's where we were. So it's it is hard for I know black people and especially to understand. Well, why would she call the police? Like that is taboo. You don't do that in a black community, right? That's mm-hmm. something you just don't do. But I also, you know, I I I had faith that if I had told them, they knew who he was, and they saw him as he was, which was gentle and kind, that he would be safe. So I had a false expectation, you know, and that should not be the case. Yeah. And I mean, I have seen, you know, again, for other people, uh, you know, if, if, uh, for example, a family has a deaf and or a blind child or a child with autism, or even, you know, that, that when I say child, that can be an adult child too, meaning it's a child of a parent, you know, but it can be an adult that the police may know there may be signs up in the community so that it's known so that people are aware and then um, can, uh, you know, um, 
um, interact with some knowledge versus kind of having any kind of fear or accidentally hitting the kid who's who's deaf and wondering, well, why didn't they hear me? Well, you know, there's a sign there that says the kid is deaf and or, you know, because uh, the family has introduced it as such. So I think there's... Um, Again, there's there's this this difference in how people with mental health conditions are treated um, to the point, as you say, that um, you know, sadly for you, ends up not only in criminalization but ends up in death, which is, of course, like the worst thing that we would want to have right. happen. Absolutely. And um, that you had this false expectation because it's like you're doing everything right based on the expectation, but it didn't, it didn't match kind of the ultimate outcome, sadly. So if there's prevention work, like if we want to look at this from a, and you were doing everything preventatively. So I feel weird asking the question like, but, but what should happen? And, you know, especially, you know, in our black communities, like, you know, what do you wish was available for you and your son that is sans police, as I say, without police? Like, what what do you think? And and you can, this is this is like sky's the limit. It doesn't have to be anything that exists today. If if you had to make up something that existed, what would it be? We just needed compassion. We just needed someone mm. to like listen to Miles, to have support, to be there to talk to him, you know, not at a point where we had to be where he had to be a danger to self, danger to others are gravely ill. So mm-hmm. if we had something where those criteria weren't weren't needed and there was an op- an opportunity like to say, okay, well, maybe there's another criteria, but it's like, you know, delusional or something, right? And just to say there's something different and mm-hmm. we can get you, we can get Miles help that way. Mm-hmm. And you didn't have to be so extreme and so what they call extreme, right? Yeah. Um, to get them help. So if we just had someone to call, mm-hmm. someone to um, understand his as a peer, mm-hmm. to be there with him, to help him and support him, mm-hmm. which was what I was trying to do and trying to find, but there was no resources because he was eighteen and he didn't. He was he didn't understand he was sick. So not you know some some people who are having a mental health episode of crisis are going to be able to get support because they understand they're ill. Mm -hmm. But the danger is when you don't understand you're ill. Yeah. It's an amazingly sad tragedy. And, you know, I keep thinking about what should have been done or what could have been done, not what should have been done. You were told what should have been done and you did it. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think, um, you know, as people are moving into adulthood, you know, us 18 year olds who move into adulthood, and then suddenly we're an adult, and we can, you know, make these decisions about what we want to do, how we want to do it, when we want to do it. I don't know, I'm just going to be honest, Tan, it was a hard, it's a hard, it's hard to hear, because it's hard to know. And, you know, for me, quite frankly, to think back on my life, because I have the same diagnosis, right? (laughs) And so, um, and people always tell me, oh, you have all this insight. And it's like, well, you know, there was a time where it was like, well, no, that does, that isn't that isn't what's going on. That isn't who I am. And I was telling somebody um, the other day about, you know, a long period where I had stopped eating. Like you could look at me now and go, oh my God, when did she ever stop eating? She's a big girl. But um, I had literally thought food was poison because that's what the voices and delusions were telling me. Food was poison. And so I had stopped eating and I did not tell my parents what was going on. They kind of knew something was going on and, you know, eventually took me to to a therapist to kind of, you know, work through. And I never really said it was the voices and delusions. And so I think it's very hard to think about how to help someone when they're 
stuck in this belief and that belief is their life and their truth and their reality. And how do you shake them of that? Right? Yeah. And you, it's kind of like, you, you kind of can't. <laughs> um, yeah. So, but you know, the, the question then becomes, you know, that, that doesn't mean that people should be giving up, like what more could we be doing? And right. I know for me being able to have someone who looked like me, who had been um, through many of the same things that I had been through just to be able to talk to me about those things so that it became more about something else versus trying to talk me out of my beliefs and delusions. It was more about how to talk me into life and how for me to see that this person was doing this stuff. And she said, yeah, and I, oh yeah, that's the street that I ran down naked on. And that's where the police picked me up and put me in St. Elizabeth's. And I was like, wait, what? Aren't you a lawyer? <laughs> you know, she was wow. a lawyer, but this is the story she's telling me. And I'm like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Wait, what? And so that sort of like was like, okay, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. There's this difference, but telling you that took years for that to happen. It didn't, it didn't happen. It took, took years. And that's, you know, also why I do the advocacy I do so that, you know, especially for black and brown people, you know, that we can have people who look like us, who've been through what we've been through, because it it starts to frame it a little bit differently. It starts to frame it in our cultural understanding. But um, how you have done this work, I think, really is going to impact so many people because we actually have a bill here in California that has passed and it's moving our 988, the uh, mental health crisis line work that the nation has, but it is named after your son. So can you talk a little bit about the California Miles Hall Lifeline and Suicide Prevention Act and 988 and what it is and what it does and yeah. you know how how people can understand like how it can be helpful? Absolutely. Yeah, no, thank you. And thank you for sharing about your story too. I mean, it's it's very powerful that you're out here doing this work and advocating for so many others. So much appreciated. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the Miles Hall Lifeline and Suicide Prevention Act, um, it's called AB 988. So it's Assembly Bill AB 988, which is in California. And that basically is um, that people will have another resource to call, right? So if someone um, is needing help, and someone needs assistance, if you're having a mental health emergency, you can call um, 988, which 988 is a national, the national line. Um, but AB 988 is a little different because it eventually will have crisis counselors that will come to assist. And there'll be a, someone on the other line to help. There'll be a place to go. So if someone needs the care and they're trying to get them stabilized, there's a stabilization center. And it also involves peers, right? So peers are going to also be able to understand and relate. And I think, you know, something like this, like I said, what if we called, we called the day before, right? What if we had 988? What if we had AB 988? If we had AB 988, crisis counselors would have come out. They Guess what? They wouldn't have guns. So mm -hmm. Miles would have been an ability to be safe. So that's why it's so important is that yeah. eventually it's not ready yet. Um, it's not meaning that the crisis counselors necessarily aren't in full deploy yet, but some cities and some counties do have mobile crisis units. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so it just has ability to basically have people who are trained instead mm -hmm. of police, people who have thousands of hours in mental health care, yeah. you know, opposed to police officers who might have 15 hours. Right, right. And people who don't have a gun you know, right. or being bag right. or any of that kind of stuff. So right. Yes. Right. Yeah. And that's, that's huge. Right. So 
that's basically we have, you know, our families created the Miles Hall Foundation and the Miles Hall Foundation Advocacy. What our, our mission is, is to protect families, educate communities about mental illness and protect those most impacted by excessive use of force by law enforcement. Mm-hmm. So this is actually our mission is happening with this Miles Hall Lifeline Act. The fact that there's another alternative so we don't have people with mental health challenges being in a position where police are going to come. Yeah. And we cannot have that excessive use of force because it killed my son. And as I find as I'm finding out doing this work, it's killed so many other people just like my son. Yes. And, you know, we want to make sure we give those people a voice Yeah. and the ability to live and thrive. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And I know you can be safe. And that having a mental illness isn't a, um, you know, hate to say it this way, but it isn't a death sentence, literally. Yeah. Yeah. No, it is. And I say that all the time. I say that mental illness isn't a crime. You know, we're taking out the criminalization. Mm -hmm. We're taking out the possibility of going to jail. Just like my son, right? We should have never even had to go to the point where he said, oh, we're using the police as a vehicle to get him help. No, that's dangerous. Exactly. Exactly. So how can people be um, get involved in your foundation? Is is there a way that people can get involved? We'll put a link in the description, but yeah. Yeah, yeah no, absolutely. I mean, follow us on Instagram, you know, mm-hmm. Twitter, Facebook, see the work we're doing as we, as we're growing, we're really trying to make sure that um, there are safe alternatives for people with mental health challenges. Right. And so as we kind of work through this go through this work and the advocacy, it really is to um, make sure that, like I said, police are not involved in mental health calls. Right. And we're also, you know, trying to do some work in the schools as far as the education and breaking the stigma against mental health challenges. Right. Exactly. So um, I'll, you know, double down on that with snaps, claps, thumbs up and say, you know, uplift, amplify, share when you're following um, on any of the social media handles. And um, I think this is, um, you know, just the way to get the word out across not just California, but across the nation. You know, when we have these kind of conversations and you and I, you know, you're doing this work, you're doing it every day. You know, sometimes you have to, you know, we tell sort of what's going on. And of course, we have to hear what's going on in the rest of the country. So how do you take care of your self-care? Because I think this is important when we do this work. It's intensely personal. Mm-hmm. So what do you do for your self-care? What does your family do for their own self-care as you're trying to use your story to do the advocacy? Yeah. You know, I mean, I think all of, you know, so I have my husband, my husband, Scott, um, who's Miles' dad. And, you know, he's, he works a lot and super busy, but I think his things are, you know, he's been playing golf more and trying to get out there and to um, get some exercise, go to the gym. Um, My daughter, she's also um, super into like fitness. So that's something she does. And for me, I just, I really spend a lot of time with friends I take the time to go to lunch, to have coffee. If I can try to get out there and listen to a concert. Mm-hmm. Now, those are my self-care things I love to do. Awesome. But one thing I do, my self-care is getting my nails done. I never did that before. Mm. Miles was killed. And I just started last year. And that's just something that it makes me feel good to look down on my hands and see that they look nice. Also, I will do, I would get massages. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I try to, I try to at least get a massage. I would like to get one once a month, but it's turning out to be once more once a quarter, but mm-hmm. just trying to be mindful about that. And then also just be quiet. 
Mm-hmm. My self-care is being quiet and getting in a quiet space and just letting myself grieve. And, um, you know, it just, it's hard. It's hard to, to run a foundation that's centered on your son's killing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's hard. It's yeah. hard. It's hard to talk to you, you know, um, mm-hmm. as much as I like you and mm-hmm. I think you're amazing. It's, it's hard to tell the story. It's, yes. I mean, I'm sure it's hard to hear as an audience. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's important for for all of us to have self care. Take the time to do what makes you feel good, right. and and separate yourself if you need to, or be around people if you need to. Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks for sharing. And my self care thing is, um, well, among other things, but I like to wear different glasses, which people have noticed that I always have like I have about ten different pairs. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, because I don't know, there's just something it's easy, like, I don't have to worry about are the clothes gonna fit? I don't know. The glasses? <laughs> always don't even have to worry about it. Yeah, no, so that's actually, my I was actually thing. looking at them. I was like, those are cool. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I try to I try to fit find different ones that are like fun or, you know, just mm-hmm. different, whatever. So so, um, you know, as we wrap up, and, and I do want to, you know, remind people that, you know, how much they want to share based on um, if they feel it traumatizes them, then sharing that sharing might also traumatize other people. So we do have to be thoughtful about how we share what we share. And I appreciate that, you know, you went through that process and, you know, shared the story so people can have an understanding of what this really looks like. Because I think yeah. a lot of times they hear A and Z and maybe not a lot between A and Z. So right. thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. So if you have one piece of wisdom, this is where we do our wisdom dropping towards the end. Um, if you have one piece of wisdom for our listeners, and again, you know, this this is a part of a series, hashtag Black Mental Health, because we're talking about Black people and Black communities, uh-huh. Black people and Black communities, I'll put it that way. So uh, if you had one piece of wisdom dropping or information you wanted to share with people about their mental health and well-being, what would it be? I mean, I would just say, just talk about it. Don't isolate. There's someone else just like you who is going through something like you're going through and you're not going to be alone. And I think that's with the stigma of mental health is that so many people hold it in and they don't tell and they don't talk about it. Um, And that's what I'm really finding out with now that I'm doing this work. People feel it is a safe. I am a safe place to to talk about it. And um, I think that's really important is that we have to break that stigma that mental health is something wrong with us or it's a bad thing, right? So many people are going through what you're going through. So I would just say, talk, you know, mm-hmm. now there's 988, there's other ways you can, you know, get some support. There's so many crisis like hotlines and chat lines. And so I would say utilize, there are resources like that. So mm-hmm. especially now, um, I would say that would be a, a, a great place to start. Wonderful. Snaps, claps, thumbs up. Couldn't agree more. That's the purpose of the podcast as well. So people can hear the stories and know they're not alone. And hopefully, even if it's reaching out to somebody that they've heard on the podcast or using 988 or any other um, resources that are out there, I um, am just going to double down on your wisdom shared today. So, Ton, thank you so much for joining us on Unapologetically Black Unicorns and sharing your story and doing the work that you're doing on behalf of your son and the rest of the nation. So thank you. Yeah, thank you so much, Karis. All right. Thank you. And so for our listeners, y'all know what to do. The producer says I need you to like, subscribe, comment. 
Sorry, producer, I put you out there on that. And yes, that's important to do. But the most important thing to do is to share and share the podcast episode so that other people can have access to this information that's so important and helpful uh, for folks in the community. So just ask you to share and then to join us next time on Unapologetically Black Unicorns, hashtag Black Mental Health.